Thanks for listening to the CISO Diaries podcast. We're Leah. And I'm Sia. And we started this podcast with the intent to give CISOs and cybersecurity professionals a place to be their authentic selves. These are the unedited stories told of how they got into cybersecurity, their real struggles that they persevered through, their personal anecdotes that make them tick, and the leadership advice based on their own experiences. And we want to especially spotlight those that are contributing and giving back to the community apart from their day jobs. This podcast is for everyone, especially if you're a leader or someone aspiring to leadership. Who knows? You may find yourself working with these awesome leaders. So join us on your favorite podcast player. And please don't forget to subscribe, follow, like, and comment and engage in the conversation. And now let's get to know our CISO on our latest diary entry. Oh, yeah. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone, and welcome to our entry today. I'm Leah McLean, here with my co-host, Sia Yasser-Tornat. A quick shout out to our sponsor, Cyber Future Foundation. They are a nonprofit of executive leaders who are focused on taking action across a number of cyber initiatives, such as workforce development, talent and training, cyber peace, and more for a safer and more trusted world. And today, we are super excited to be here with Andrea Bonim Blanc, and she is many things, GRC and ethics. For those who don't know what GRC is, it's governance, risk, and compliance. Uh, She is the CEO and founder of GEC Risk Advisory. She is a top voice in compliance. She serves on several boards and advisory boards. She's a frequent speaker at conferences such as World Economic Forum in Davos. She holds a joint JD in law and PhD in political science from Columbia University. She's an adjunct professor at NYU, where she's based currently in New York City, an author of a variety of papers and four books, including the latest, Gloom to Boom, How Leaders Transform Risk into Resilience and Value. And Andrea, I don't know, <laughs> I don't typically use this term to describe people, but in this case, I think it's warranted. You're, you're a bit of a unicorn. <laughs> I don't always believe in calling people that, but oh my gosh, I, but, but, welcome, first of all, to our... Yeah, first of all, I've never been called a unicorn before. As long as I'm not associated with Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos, I'm okay with that with that name. Um, on the other hand, I also don't have the nine billion uh, in value that Theranos was uh, valued at. So, so I'm neither a billionaire nor uh, a crook. I hope, um, but <laughs> no, that you're not. We know because of the ethics, <laughs> which is very high. <laughs> Well, thank you for magically appearing with us here today. I just want to start from the beginning with you a little bit because I think you have a fascinating life and I and we're curious to see how that's uh, brought you into the work that you do today and you've been doing for so long. I guess take us back a little bit. You were born and raised in Europe, currently li- living in New York City. How exactly did you get into GRC and ethics and, and where you're at? I mean, was it personal upbringing? Your parents something because I will say we we do a lot of work with folks trying to get them into the cybersecurity and and look at all the different domains and we I've not at least from the mentees I work with heard anybody say I'd like to look at GRC so 
So, so it, it's a long and winding story, and I'll, I'll address the GRCPs first, but then I'll give you a little more of the background. I didn't seek out to become a, a governance risk and compliance person, so that's nomenclature that's out there. I started life as a lawyer, a lawyer on Wall Street doing Wall Street-like transactions, which was not something that I uh, loved to do. And I was lucky enough to get invited to become the general counsel, which, again, is a legal job more than anything else at a uh, startup subsidiary of a very large utility who wanted to go to uh, you know countries all over the world to build, develop, own, operate electric power. And so I got that job. And in that job, I ended up doing many more things. Um, so I ended up becoming the corporate secretary. So the governance piece, I did risk management. I did crisis management. I brought in, they brought in environmental health and safety under my wing. So I ended up becoming sort of the, uh, you know, the person that uh, got all the non-financial issues that have financial impacts. And I will date myself here, but that's okay. Um, I got responsibility to worry about Y2K in 1999 when everybody was freaking out about Y2K. And so that was my first real contact, using the movie contact as a possible (laughs) reference, my first real contact, a movie I really love, by the way. Yeah, Um, great movie. Yeah, really great movie. And so preparing my team and speaking to technical people, uh, you know, IT people and others, to coordinate what do we do for Y2K was my first direct sort of responsibility for technical or technological things. So so that's kind of the GRC piece. It's really more, I started as a lawyer and then gained sort of responsibility and, and visibility into these other areas. I ended up a total of four executive jobs over about 18 years, and I moved more and more away from the law and towards business ethics compliance, corporate responsibility, what we all call ESG these days. And my last corporate job, I actually became the overseer of information security, of cybersecurity at a a technology firm that was global and very interesting. And that was my most direct contact with the whole world of cyber. And that was about 10, 11 years ago now. So so that was my real incursion into, into cyber. And just to sort of go back a little bit further, I, I did grow up in Germany and Spain. My father was a, uh, a U.S. government uh, employee abroad. Mm-hmm. He met my mother in Germany. I lived there till I was six, and then we moved to Spain, uh, and I stayed there till I was 17. So my background is very based in, in that world. And, you know, I, I love my, my Spanish friends. I feel more Spanish than I do anything else. But I came to New York and I did a political science undergraduate degree and then a PhD in political science in addition to the law degree. And poli-sci, sociology, anthropology, uh, the social sciences have always fascinated me and continue to. And so I think that's a really good place where people can come from to land in the cyber world, right? Because there's so much going on in the cyber world. It's so interdisciplinary. But anyway, I'll zip it here so you can get a word in that drawers. No, I I just think it's fascinating. And I actually, I know it's a little random thought, but I knew when I met you last year, it was, I think it was around this time frame, September, October. And because you're also on the board for Cyber Future Foundation. Thank you very much, by the way. I used to follow... Uh, Wall Street Journal, oh, I st- still do very closely. And I had come across, I forget it is Ben, I can't remember the last name of the reporter. Ben DePietro. Yeah, yeah. For yeah. the column he did, Crisis of the Week. Mm-hmm. And 
because I kept trying to place your name. I said, it sounds so familiar. I could not remember. And so in the last week or so, you know, just kind of preparing leading up to this chat with you, um, I, I found out why, because you were always one of the ones that was quoted and gave your perspective for the crisis of the week. And I think he's gone on to do something else because it's been a couple of years since, uh, and I don't think that they've continued the column, but I loved it. And it was literally... Yeah. You yeah. think about that crisis of the week, right? And I mean, we have them every day practically in our worlds, but I don't know. That's just where I, I remember seeing your name and, and you know, I guess now you're doing your own company. You're actually running your own company. What led you to do that? Did you get to a point where you said, you know, I'm ready to just run things and take it on myself? You know, I, I always had this little tiny entrepreneur inside of the exterior that I was, you know, of a legal executive or, you know, business ethics and compliance person. I got frustrated with the corporate world because I did have four jobs um, over 18 years and they were all great in their own separate ways. But I felt increasingly that I couldn't uh, really do my trade, which was, you know, helping executives and boards do the right thing when it comes to corporate responsibility topics, ESG topics, cyber topics. I just felt that I would I would be better off being on the outside looking in for those who wanted the help because very frequently inside a corporation, there's politics, there's um, you know other things going on, jurisdictional disputes that don't allow you to do your 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 best work and. Um, Again, I had a, a great experiences over the years, and I learned a tremendous amount. And everything that I learned, I was in different industries. Um, you know, I ended up with all these different responsibilities. So I saw a lot of cross-sector patterns and systemic things, as well as you know, tactical things. And I felt like, you know, if I can't do what I really love to do on the inside in one place, let me see if I can do what I love to do on the outside for several clients who really care and really want. And what's interesting is I didn't set out to say, oh, I'm only going to do this kind of work or that kind of work. But what's happened is most of my clients over the years and presently are clients that are already doing things really well and they want to do it better. You know, they, they have the emotionally intelligent leaders. They have the boards that are proactive. They care about their stakeholders and things like that. And so for me, it's been just a joyful to have my own business because, and I'm tiny. I mean, I'm, it's mainly me and then I have a couple of close friends that I work with uh, on bigger projects, but it's all about getting to that top uh, level of an organization. By the way, it's government agencies, it's nonprofits and it's business. So it's, mm -hmm. it's across those areas as well. And there's nothing that I, I, I love more than reaching those people who are the decision makers and getting them to see the light. Yeah. And do the right thing. So, you know, I feel very privileged. Let's put it that way. Well, and I think C and I can both relate to leaving the corporate world. And, you know, as much as it can be hard and challenging to move beyond that, you're right. The freedom that you can get to, you know, I got to the point where I just got tired of making plans and not being to execute and show results. And I thought, hey, I need to, you know, I'd like to personally just do something and make an impact. Where can I go to do that? Yeah, so absolutely. And I apologize. I'm I'm recovering stuff. So I'm not going to be talking as much. But Andrea, I have to ask you because it's so amazing to me to see that jump. Do you find because of your legal background that it differentiates you from other advisors that are consulting currently in the C-suite? Very interesting question. 
You know, I don't tout my legal expertise that much. I'm not a practicing lawyer anymore, but it is part of, you know, what I have to offer. And so it's interesting. I don't accentuate that, but, but, but I think the rigor and the discipline that came with that, um, you know, walk of life and profession does give you a little bit of an edge sometimes with, you know, people who want to hire you as a consultant or whether it's, you know, whether it's deserved or not, um, lawyers are seen as people who go through a rigorous, you know, professional development and what have you. I think lawyers also are very narrow in their outlook on things. And so um, I don't consider myself a narrow outlook person. In fact, the opposite, I try to sort of think about the whole situational awareness that, that we need to think about in today's really crazy world. And so I think lawyers who are old fashioned, traditional green eye shades kind of lawyers, they don't have a lot to offer in this world, maybe some technical, a lot of technical, but they're not seeing the big picture. And so for me, moving from being a lawyer to being a strategic consultant, let's call it that, uh, has been a liberation. (laughs) Um, But that's me too. You know, not everybody feels that way. Other people really love being lawyers and they're great at it. And I don't want to take away. But, uh, But yeah, it's a great question. And I think you know, the world still has that perception that lawyers are more disciplined, more, you know, careful, more rigorous. And, and that's true. I, I sort of like to think of myself as someone who can see the big picture, but also drill down on the details. Um, so I think that's, that's something that has, has served me well as a, as a person, as a professional. And um, I think it's, this world requires people who can do both. Oh, no, I, I love that because, I mean, I don't know anything about the legal field, but I have lawyer friends that I love to make fun of. Because well, <laughs> it's easy to. Um, but it sounds like it sounds like to me though, with cybersecurity and the legal world, the one thing that I think vein similar, I guess the same thing that you guys can both kind of put your hats to is process. It feels yes. like to me, especially yeah. with GRC, you have to be detailed oriented. Yes, you do have to see the bigger picture, but establishing process and that baseline. So can I ask you, what is your method for establishing process? Did you get that from your legal roots or is that just because you saw what happened? There's a gap in cybersecurity and you created your own process, if you will. It's a great question. I, I mean, I think I come from wherever my skill set is. Um, I would not be able to do, you know, mathematically based stuff. It's just not part of my DNA or part of my brains. Um, and so I've kind of increasingly moved in the direction of where my my strengths are, I guess. And I know what my weaknesses are. And, you know, sometimes I've had situations where someone has asked me to do something and I said, I, I, I'm not the right person for you. You know, I, I'm very transparent about that. I don't believe in uh, either tricking people or uh, in, in embarrassing myself. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's kind of a combination of things. But um, but I don't know where my sort of, I am very, you know, very sort of um, disciplined. I keep saying it's because I have a German mother, but um, <laughs> I'm not sure that this is really true. Um, but uh, she was very disciplined and very regelmäßig, uh, as we say in German. But um, so I've always been that way. You know, I did a, the P, most of the work for my PhD in political science before I did my law degree. So um when I was doing the PhD, I was very rigorous about that too. And then when I went to law school, which is very interesting to your to your question, Sia, um, and comment, uh, when I went to law school, everything that I had uh, done in, in graduate school for the PhD in political science, which served me very well, and I did very well in terms of grades and so on, 
it was the opposite of what was necessary in law school. So I had to learn a couple of lessons in law school about how you do a legal analysis versus, you know, political risk analysis or something else. But it's all a learning thing. And I think one of the things that I've been blessed with just luckily because of, you know, whatever influences uh, nurture or nature, I don't know, is that I'm a learning person and I constantly want to learn more. It's, it's like, if I don't keep learning, I might as well quit, you know? Um, and so I think, I think the learning piece has always driven me. And I think the happiest people in the world are the people who keep pushing and learning, um, whether it's for themselves or for others, what have you. Yeah. And that's important regardless, right, of how old we get. And I think it speaks to just when you were talking earlier, that you can see, you know, very broadly have a broad perspective and situational awareness and, and learning, always learning and evolving comes into that. And I think it's what makes great leaders too, right? It's funny you mentioned your your mom. My m- mother's of Italian descent, but uh, she also was a very disciplined person. So <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> and I graduated from college with a degree in political science and emphasis on international relations. And I did go into straight into tech right after it was IT and networking to start before cyber. But it's funny, I I didn't, um, it wasn't at the time anyways, that there was not much in terms of opportunity or awareness around looking at roles that, you know, had to do with governance, risk, compliance, ethics, et cetera. You know, I'm, I'm curious to get your perspective on this because we've, We've chatted with a lot of CISOs and, you know, they'll tell us the, you know, it's not always all rainbows and sunshine. We all know this, but, and they talk about the, you know, recognition that they don't always get. And when they get it, it's not always great. Right. Um, But you look at, at least from what I've been seeing, and it's not every day I actually get to chat on this topic. And um, so I'm excited that you're here with us today to make that happen. But, you know, I think there's, I've seen and heard this, there's still confusion within some organizations, right? When they look at security and then GRC and the understanding around it and thinking that, you know, compliance with security and assuming if they're compliant with regulatory standards then they're protected. And then also sometimes I think GRC can be seen as a negative in companies. I'm curious your thoughts because a lot of the CISOs we, we talk to, you know, they've got very strong opinions on, you know, putting CISOs at the C-suite or on the board from GRC and and the work that you do. When did you start seeing more of um, more boards and companies really adopting that and realizing the importance of it and and the understanding? Uh, What a great bunch of comments and, and, and thoughts. Um, I think there's a real parallel uh, between folks in the GRC space, ethics, uh, corporate responsibility included, and the CISO community. The CISO community has gained prominence in the last 10 years or so because we have this enormous you know, set of new threats that are evolving every day. Um, but they are still bucketed in the, uh, here's the you know, subject matter expert who's going to fix our problem. Yeah. Um, and I think the governance, risk, compliance, and, and similar community are have always been in that same bucket as well um but they've been in a little longer so maybe you've seen a little more evolution you, you once in a while you'll see a chief compliance officer or a general counsel or a chief 
um, you know, a, a governance person who s- uh, serves on a board, um, let's say. So they've started to make it in there. There's this other big push um, that uh, folks, especially in the cyberspace, and I know a few of them, uh, making that CISOs should be on boards as well. Mm-hmm. And I think the real question there, and I, I sometimes disagree. I don't disagree uh, that we need more people who are not just CEOs or CFOs on boards. That's my big thing, because mm-hmm. that's the the norm. The only people who get put on boards, generally speaking, are CEOs or former CEOs and CFOs, former CFOs. Yeah. And my big push has been for a long time, you need to have these other perspectives. You need to have, but but then, you, so you want to have two, three, four people that are not CEOs and not CFOs, but then the real onus is on the person. Is that person qualified to see laterally, to, to bring the experiences that are necessary at the oversight level, for example? And, and that same thing applies for senior executive levels. Um, they have to be able to see sideways and incorporate some of those things into what they bring to the table. Um, and the problem that happens when you have a chief risk officer or CISO or chief com- uh, compliance officer who joins a board if they're the only person and they're being brought in as a, you know, oh, we, we, we did this, um, they become this isolated expert frequently rather than a person who's a peer to the others. And this is the problem that we're working through, I think, in the, in the governance field, in the world of boards. Um, I think it's starting, the ice is starting to break a little bit. We have more women on boards than we used to have, more people, of color, right? Yeah. Um, and so finally, there's a little bit of that, but it's because of the times that we're living in. It's the pandemic. Mm-hmm. It's the social justice issues. It's the cyber attacks that are getting people to say, oh, we better have a few, uh, you know. Uh, now, boards like to think of themselves often like we're the experts, we're the CEOs. We can bring in the consultants to help us. I disagree. I think you need to have peers on those boards who can speak the language of risks, speak the language of technology, speak the language of ESG. Because this world is changing dramatically and it's not going backwards as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, you gave a lot to think about, but what's the other big one I have? It's, you know, looking at the talent right now. And I, again, I, I uh, we, well, we, we see in here a lot of talent shortage. I don't think there's a talent shortage. I think there's plenty of talent out there. But in terms of making um, talent more, these folks who are looking at a career in cyber or, you know, kind of figuring out where with their skill sets, where they're matched to and and going into GRC, um, because there's I don't think there's as much awareness around getting people into that domain specifically. And those that I mentor, they just don't talk about it that much. And it may be and I know it's because they don't know enough. you know, are there things that you're doing or, or things that, that, you know, you could advise to those who are trying to look at cybersecurity and anything that you can mention and um, call out just so we can give that um, a little bit more awareness so folks can consider this as a pathway and, and why it's important and where they might even need to start. Because as you said, coming from a background of either, you know, law or political science or other where, um, those skill sets can easily translate into making them very good in these roles. Um, right. Anything that you can provide there, I think it's important. 
Yeah, you know, um, I think that the cyber world is uh, so complex, new, and multifaceted that almost anybody can plug in. Um, and I don't mean that as an insult. I mean that as we're mm -hmm. all learning together here, and um, we require different kinds of thinking, different lenses. And so um, I would, you know, whether it's legal, whether it's governance, risk, uh, you know, engineering, it, it doesn't matter. I think if you have an interest in contributing to um, to finding solutions in a world that's evolving quickly, that's full of threats, that um, that is changing every day, uh, and you're a curious, learning-oriented person who doesn't necessarily need to be put in a bucket, um, that is the kind of person I think who's going to thrive in, a, in, in the, the world of the cyber jobs that we all need to fill, right? Um, and so, for example, I teach at NYU's uh, Center for Global Affairs. Uh, there's yes. a master's program there. Mm -hmm. So uh, they have a specialization for cyber crime and national security. And um, my course is called uh, Cyber Leadership, Risk Oversight and Resilience, because those are the areas that I know. Uh, I don't know a lot of other stuff, so I can't teach about that. But, um, yeah, you're, but it, well, you're being uh, very humble there, by the way. <laughs> it's kind of what I my my brain is sort of structured that way, right? Um, and it's interesting because I get these great students. They're all master's level, so there's some young professionals, pretty much people who've been in the workforce already, and um, they're not necessarily going to have a career in cyber, but but. Um, the fact that I'm connecting them back to concepts that they understand, like risk management, or even if they don't understand it, we spend time talking about enterprise risk management and how cyber needs to be a bucket within that and so on and so forth. Um, connecting the dots back to places that we understand is important, I think, um, when we're teaching cyber, when we're uh, doing cyber, because it is so new and so different. It's, it's almost like a, 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 a virtual world that has suddenly been been, you know, exploded in front of us and we need to deal with it. And so I think it's important to always ground it back into concepts and things that people recognize, because then there may be a role for somebody who has, you know, uh, someone who has a mathematical mind to come in and make a contribution, someone who has, um, you know, who would otherwise want to be an accountant, maybe they, they should be, you know, an auditor, of, of, of cyber risk, um, you know, things like that, where you can um, appeal to people who maybe want to go into the traditional fields, but this is a new field where your traditional skill sets can be very applicable and very um, relevant and important. Um, so that's kind of how I like to think about it. I don't know if I answered your question. No, I you love did, what you're you saying because um, it's not sexy. It doesn't, GRC just, just doesn't ring you know, know, all the bells and whistles like a hacker, right? Does, right? It's not, it's just not sexy, unfortunately. So can I ask you this then? If, because um, I'm part of like these like social media groups where there's women in cybersecurity and they want, or they're either in it or they're transitioning into cybersecurity. What recommendation do you have for these folks? Because GRC is not a, it's new. Like you say, it's burgeoning. It's like, it's a lack of awareness. So what do you, <coughs> excuse me, pause. <laughs> what do you suggest um, 
to help people understand, no, this is an option. This is a field out there. Cause I don't see even posting ads yeah. right outside of our podcast that we're talking about it. You know, what else is there? Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't like using the GRC nomenclature myself because mm -hmm. uh, it's sort of like a bureaucratic thing. What do you mean? What is that? I like to think about the, the diverse fields that we're talking about and, and the skill sets that are required for those fields. So when you're talking about governance, um, you know, governance can be very sexy in the sense that uh, it requires a design of, of superstructures and leadership groups and rules and regulations that make sure that they're responsible, good citizens, uh, obey the law. And, and it might not be the sexiest thing in the world, but, but break it down into its components. Risk management to me is really interesting. I think I, I'm, I'm sure I have some DNA that made me a risk manager at, at day one um, because <laughs> I do, right? Yeah. But, but, but one of the things I've learned over the years, which I have, uh, and I give a lot of credit to the first CEO I reported to at the power company, mm -hmm. my first executive job, uh, we were both very young and executives for the first time. And, um, you know, my natural tendency was, oh, oh my God, there's a, there's a corruption problem over here. What do we do? And uh, he said, you have to be less alarming about how you deliver, <laughs> deliver bad news. And that kind of got me down a road of saying, you know, risk is always there. Uh, don't be alarming about it. Be prepared about it. Understand it. And then one more. Risk can be opportunity. There's a, it's a yin and the yang. There's the two sides of the coin here. The risk is risk is always going to exist, and we are living in in a in a convergence of systemic risk that like we've never lived in certainly our lifetimes uh, right now, and that will continue because climate change, because cyber, because AI, because of quantum. I mean, we're going to just continue having all kinds of stuff happening at us. So let's recognize that, but let's not just say, oh, how do we protect our downside? No, how through protecting our you know, uh, risks, do we create better products and services? Do we take better care of our stakeholders? Do we protect our nations, et cetera, et cetera? So to me, there's always opportunity embedded in risk. So I want people to think about those things, not as those bureaucratic, uh, you know, alphabet soup of things, but as distinct areas of expertise that they may naturally or, or otherwise uh, become attracted to, to doing. I mean, I, I'm convinced engineers are engineers at birth too, because they have a set of skills that I don't have, for example. But anyway, um, long and short, uh, I, I think people need to go where their passion is, where their talents are, and then uh, hopefully they're learning people and they can help invent new worlds in the sense of either risk, opportunity, you name it. Thank you for all of that. It's, it's interesting because I started thinking um, back to leadership and, you know, we dive into that and talk about it with other guests, but at the same time, um, and for everyone who's listening, I don't even think we necessarily need to, need to ask you, um, you know, how to define it or, what that looks like, because this whole conversation, I mean, this is leadership here, I would say, from what, you know, you're doing in the community, the way you think, um, the way you view the world, um, as well as the work that you do, um, and the perspective you bring. I mean, everything you've said, you know, I'll say to the audience, for those who are um, trying to become better leaders, or um, those younger folks who are our future leaders, this is it that this conversation. So I want to thank you for that. Number one, 
Um, but number two, I mean, there there's a lot that this this world, you know, it's getting crazier by the minute, um, you know, in today's times and 2021 here and going into next year. Um, it, potentially that means more opportunity as well. But that being said, you know, there's a lot of work to be done and, and so much more to do but we, we can't burn out. Right. And, and so I question for you, Andrea, and by the way, I really hope one day I can, we can visit you in New York city. I miss that city so much. It's one of my favorite cities within the U S um, but how do you avoid burnout? And, and I guess share too, cause I'm very intrigued. And um, if we visit you, we want to know where to find you have um, art. I think that in, in photography that is exhibited. So- yeah, in the past, I, I haven't been doing too much of that lately, although to my detriment and, and to your point about burnout. Um, so a lot of things there, when you complimented me before, the podcast listeners can't see that I was blushing. So thank you for that, <laughs> number one. Um, number two, um, yeah, I think burnout is a real problem. And I, you know, I've actually, I'll be very, I'll be very uh, frank and very direct here. Mm-hmm. You know, I live in New York City, so we were hit hard first. Yeah. Um, and we we stayed in the, we, we have a little place out on Long Island. We stayed in the city for the first five months, A, because we were New Yorkers and we feel, you know, uh, loyalty to our city. Um, we also felt safer in our city, believe it or not, um, because we're close to other people and, um, you know, uh, supply chain and hospitals and mm-hmm. services and so on. Um, and then we, we got to go out of our house for a couple of months, uh, and then back and forth a little bit over the last year and a half. And, um, what I would say is my default position is to work. (laughs) That's my way of staying sane. Uh, I love what I do. So that, that, you know, the, the luck factor there is, is immense. Um, but I am finding myself getting to a point where I said yes to too many things. I do a lot of volunteer work. Um, in addition to having to make a living. So uh, I don't, you know, I don't have a consulting business because it's a nice to have. It's a must have. So I, you know, that's how I earn my living. But I also do a lot of volunteer work and I love to speak and I love to write. So you do the math. I I end up working every day and and I'm starting to feel a little burnt out to be very frank. And I've been starting to, uh, to talk to friends and family and say, you know, I need to say no more often. I need to you know, uh, I subscribe to 10 newspapers, maybe I should subscribe to five, you know, <laughs> because I feel obligated to read every one of them. Yeah. Um, but that's, I am also a news junkie. And I love to read the latest in cyber, the latest in ESG, and so on and so forth. And that's kind of what I do, right. So I'm, I'm a combination of someone who loves what I do and do it does it all the time, but I really have to watch out to, to stop the burnout. Um, so I'm thinking about some options like grab a book and go to the roof of my apartment building and disconnect <laughs> something like that, but I haven't done it yet. <laughs> no, and I mean, that's a good point too. You made because it's clear that you're very passionate about what you do. And I think that's great when you can be working and doing what you love. It doesn't feel like work. Right. Um, and, and that is the, uh, the double-edged sword. I think for many of us, um, cause likewise, I love what I do and then I'll find myself working too much and saying yes to everything, but then I'm dropping the ball. I'm like, okay, it, you know, yeah, I need to rein it back in, really get prioritized, organized, and then also remind myself. And I do when I go, you know, get out just even, 
take a long walk, <laughs> right? And finally, the weather here in Texas is cooling down, but yeah, it's important. So um, yes, I hope you get to that book you want to read on your uh, rooftop while the weather stays nice for you right now. <laughs> yeah, no. So I got to ask you this though, Andrea, because um, as we've been talking to a lot of these other great leaders on our podcast, it seems to be a common thread. Um, and I think it's a common thread in leadership in general of this constant movement, constant doing something. And I think it's part of the traits. Um, once you get into that, you know, executive leadership role, you could be middle manager role or leadership in your own team for that matter. Do you think um, the analogy, what you were describing in my head, you know, I was thinking of a view. Sophia Loren. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. Yes. So I was thinking in my head was, um, you're like, you, I think you've done to yourself that we've done to so many kids, um, if we're parents where they've got like 15 sports and they're yeah. constantly running from one sport, changing in the car to dress and do another outfit for another sport. Do you think this is something that can be resolved a little bit? Because I feel like you're right. You haven't stopped yourself to smell the roses. You haven't stopped to let your mind wander on your rooftop to stare at the rooftops, right. You know, and look at the city around you. Yeah. Is that something where do you really think that's something that's in you to achieve it? Or is it something we just like to give lip service to? It's a great, great question. And a very insightful since we just met. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, thank you for that. Um, I totally agree. And I've always been one of these people who is uh doing what you just described that some parents do to their kids. I do it to myself. I don't do it to other people, but I do it to myself. Um, and I think one has to stop to smell the roses. And I mean, the good news is I, I have a, you know, great family that I live with and uh, they keep me grounded and we watch, you know, Netflix gorging together and, and things like that. So, so it's not like I'm constantly working and I never, you know, watch Netflix or have a glass of wine. So I do. Um, but, but I think one has to maybe say, okay, there's a day a week that nothing is on the game. And I have to say, I have been good about that Saturdays and Sundays. Sometimes people want to have calls and, and zooms. I say, no, that's it. I'm going to put a, a line ar around those two days because uh, I will be working. I'll be writing an article or something like that, but I don't want to have a zoom. I don't want to talk to people. <laughs> I've become more, more antisocial, I guess, is one way to put it. Um, but, you know, I fear that um, the COVID environment that we're all living in, uh, which is mostly virtual, sometimes mm -hmm. people, um, ha has sort of um, uh, underscored or pushed us in a direction where we're originally, you know, I'm, I'm slightly, I'm like introverted, extroverted. I'm kind of right on the line. And I've been pushed into being more introverted in the sense of, I don't really want to meet with people because it's going to be uncomfortable and I'm going to have to wear a mask and this and that, or I'm going to get COVID or what have you. So, um, so I've become more antisocial. Uh, I'll be that. I'll be very frank about that in terms of I've had lunches uh, outdoors and things like that, but I don't covet it. I, I feel more for, uh, I don't want to get the COVID, yeah. um, you know? And so uh, 
otherwise I'm very social, but I've become less social and I don't like that. I don't like that about what's happened, you know, in the last year. But if that's the worst of my problems, I, I'm not complaining. Let's put it that well, way. I have a feeling based on your open mind and um, how you're always evolving that um, you can overcome that. <laughs> I have a feeling that <laughs> one thing that I really miss tremendously. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew, I knew that at the beginning, but I'm actually feeling it now is uh, I love to travel. I've traveled all over the world. Um, I loved, I, I used to travel two or three times a month somewhere. And oh yeah. You were always gone. <laughs> <laughs> to Latin America, where, where you know I, I do a lot of stuff, and um, e- even if I had to go to Chicago or you know some other part closer to me, um, I always enjoy that because for me, travel equals learning. Yep. You're going to learn something, and you're going to be stimulated, and you're going to see something that you didn't see before, or meet someone that you didn't meet before. And so for me, that I really, it's like a hole in my soul right now. Um, to not be able to freely travel. I don't want to actually travel. Um, and I've, in fact, for CFF's big symposium in October, I said, I'll be hybrid. Sorry. No, <laughs> uh, we can respect uh, that. <laughs> yeah. you can, but, but it's, it's too bad, right? Because yeah. I'll, I'll miss out and, and um, you know, we won't be able to chat in person and stuff like that. Well, well someday we will. I, I have hope for the future. And I think I... I don't know where I saw it. You talked about that at one point in time, the hope that you'll hold it. Oh, it was a tweet last night. I was commenting to our friend Catherine's tweet and saw yours and then saw something else and it was hope. But being staying in a hopeful mindset as we wrap up here, um, when things hopefully normalize around at least COVID, and if you try, because I'll say this, you gave me some uh, a reminder that I'm going to try to do the follow your advice on weekends, not to take the calls. Yeah, yeah, I'll still work, but because I still do that, I'll still say, okay, sure, I'll talk. Because no, don't. Yeah, Get so I'm going to try not to do that. Sure. What will you? What place will you try to visit in the not too far distance when you're ready to travel again? I, I so know where I'm going to go. My my hometown in the south of Spain, Malaga, which is where I grew up, uh, and Madrid, where I have my girlhood friends. We have a group of nine of us who have stayed in touch since age six. Um, and oh, how, fun. I don't know how many years that is, but <laughs> several decades to put it mildly. And so the point there is um, I so want to go. And, and by the way, one of the things that's kept my mental health really good this last year and a half is um, that. I, I would normally see them in person maybe once or twice a year because I have business in Spain and whatever. We have we have instituted a no-fail once a week Zoom for the nine of us. Not all nine of us can get on the Zoom every Friday, mm-hmm. but we have been in touch more than ever before. And they're all over Spain, North Spain, Madrid, South. Um, so that's my answer to you. I'm going back to Spain as fast as I can. <laughs> Awesome. Oh, I can't wait to um, see you when you do that. And I'm intrigued to hear how that trip will be. <laughs> yes. uh, well, I know as we wrap up, Andrea, any parting thoughts for us? I just want to say it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. And uh, uh, oh, just to have um, you even here as a female with us today, too, is really important. And I know I'm emphasizing that, but um, we need more females in our space here. So thank you so much for 
being here and and sharing so much. And it's just, it's, I'm inspired. It's still early in the day for me here in Texas. And I feel like I'm renewed energy after this conversation. Um, Any parting thoughts for our listeners? Parting thoughts is I love what you two guys are doing. Um, This is wonderful. Uh, Spread the word, bring in the women, bring in people of different backgrounds. Um, And I think it's absolutely a beautiful public service uh, to be very frank that you're spreading the good word out there, talking about this stuff. Um, Yes, we need more women. Yes, we need more people of color uh, working in this space and in all spaces, to be very frank. Uh, We didn't talk politics, but if there were more women in charge uh, around the world in some of the countries that we can think of, uh, we might not have as many wars or enmities. So um, again, we're not perfect, but I think we bring something to the table that, that is valuable. So um, thank you, ladies. You guys are rocket and rocking it. And uh, it was a real pleasure to be here with you. Oh, well, thank you, too. Happy to have you as always. And uh, I'm sure we'll have you again at another time. We can yeah. talk it, maybe explore politics, which they say never to talk to. Um, talk yeah, no, it. we're not going to. We'll do that offline. I'm just going to go on record right now. Like, on a Zoom call. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe with alcohol. <laughs> so, uh, Andrea, thank you so much. And I do want to say we didn't say it once. Doctor. Andrea Beaumont Blanc, thank you so much. Um, Actually, doctor, I have a PhD and a JD, but anyway, I won't go there. <laughs> so, well, well, yeah. So, how do we? How would we say that? Would we say like super doctor, 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 doctor two, doctor squared, doctor strange love? <laughs> oh, oh, that's a great movie. That is a great movie. Oh my gosh. Awesome. Well, hey, on that note, then, um, so, uh, well, if we can do Dr. Strangelove, we can have that visual of us all sitting on a, on a nuclear bomb, just like cowboy, like, yeah, going. oblivion. That's a good metaphor for the cyber world, right? Yes, it is. <laughs> I mean, yes, it is. <laughs> to some degree, <laughs> it is very true. So yeah. let's keep it happy. Exactly. <laughs> so on that, <laughs> on that note, let's close out this entry of the CISO Diaries. Thank you so very much, everyone. Have a wonderful week and be safe and stay safe.